0: You are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus peace be with you. So let us hear this word from God's servant, Paul, uh, to this church um, in the port city, Ephesus. The apostle Paul continues, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. How do people change? I wonder if you've thought about that question before. How do people change? It might be easy to think of the answer to that question when you're thinking on an individual level. But what about a group of people? How do you get a group of people from maybe different socioeconomic statuses, different ethnicity, different gender, different age? How do you get all of them to change? See, I'm convinced that in order to get someone to change, you have to present an airtight case that there is a problem. It's like Pastor Luke talked about last week. You have to have a proper diagnosis that something is wrong. Because if you can't convince somebody that something is wrong, there is very little hope for change. But say you do convince somebody that something is wrong. What then? What can that individual or even group of folks do to course correct, if anything? See, the air that we breathe around us will tell us that in order to change, we are the pivot point of transformation. They'll tell us the story, but you. Oh, your life was a wreck. But you pulled it all together. Look what you did. You were heading downstream in white water, but you swam upstream against all odds, and you saved yourself. You turned it all around. See, our cultures, maybe maybe some of your beliefs is that in order for folks to change, they have to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. That the problem is not just inside of them, but the solution is inside of them as well. But the Apostle Paul has some drastically different news for you and for me. It's a different starting point that has very little to do with me. (laughs) Praise the Lord. (laughs) and has very little to do with you. You see, before there was ever the good news of Christ Jesus, there was the bad news about us. Before the Bible ever says the words, but God, before we ever agree with that statement, but God, we have to first admit and agree with the words, and you. Do you remember these words from last week? Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world. This is Paul's diagnosis for me. For me apart from Christ. This is Paul's diagnosis for you apart from Christ, but he has an even better cure, and it's not me, and it's not you, It's God who raises the dead to life, to no longer walk in works that lead to death. But this is what we're focusing on here today. But he made us alive to walk in good works. This is what Paul's inviting you, inviting me, inviting this church in Ephesus to see this morning. That God made you alive to walk in good works and no longer dead works. You all with me this morning? We're going to observe this through three different vantage points. We're going to take a look at first at what God did, if you're taking notes, it's the first point, what God did. Second, why God did it. And third, who God declares us to be. What God did, why God did it, and who God declares us to be. Y'all ready to dive into this this morning? First point, what God did. Look again with me, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you all see how rich God's mercy is? He doesn't hoard it from you. Do you see that his mercy and love is for you not after you woke up? It wasn't after you resurrected yourself from the grave. But verse 4, when did he show you his mercy and love? When you were dead, the dead cannot cast a ballot for God. But you know what the living God does? He elects those who were dead to be made alive. The dead cannot speak words to call out to God, but God calls us into a living hope. He resurrects us. The dead cannot wake themselves up to make a move towards God up a mountain, but no, God comes down off of his holy throne and makes his move towards us and calls us out of the grave. The spiritual dead have zero desire for spiritual life. One of my former pastors once said, it's like, Spiritual zombies don't sink after the living God any more than an escaped convict goes and tries to find a police station. It's not that a police station is hard to find, it's that for the escaped convict, the police station represents everything that is abhorrent to the escaped convict. It's no different for walking zombies. No different. They avoid that which is life. If God has to wait on you and me to show up, hear this good news, he'd still be waiting, but he loved us even while we were still dead. We were the walking dead, verse 4. Not when you demonstrated potential. That's not when he chose to love you. And it wasn't even when you cried tears of remorse for the wrong that you've done that he chose to love you. No, he loved you not when you're metaphorically dead. Literally dead. That's so where I, I love this author I've been reading lately, Scotty Smith. He says, the gospel is not a redo. It is a resurrection. This passage is this contrast between who we all once were. Who were we? Help me out. Who were we once apart from Christ? Dead. And now who is he saying we are because of Christ? Alive. It's our condition, God's compassion. We are deserving children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But instead, God shows us mercy. If you want to hear a simple definition for mercy, it's this. It's not getting what we deserve. That's what mercy is. It's not getting what you deserve. We deserve wrath, but what do we receive instead? Love, with the great love with which he loved us. And this language, alive, raised, and seated. Do you you see that language in verse 5? This should be like a reprise of an old Motown tune for us. That's what it should feel like. It should groove. It should have a nice backbeat behind it. No, I'm not going to sing Jackson 5 ABC right now. I know you want me to. But this is what those words should feel like to us right now. Because Paul is reminding us of this language that he used prior back in chapter 1. Remember, he prayed for us that we would know, that we would see with the eyes of our heart, hope, riches, and power. And where is that power coming from that he prays for our eyes to see? He says... It, He prays for us to see the power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he, say it with me, raised him from the dead. And what else did he do? He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul pray that we would know that Christ is alive, he's raised, and he's seated? It's because where Christ is, that's where you are by faith through grace. That's where you are. You are alive in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ. What's true of Jesus, Christian, is true of you. It's true of me. This is wonderful news. This is what theologians call our union with Jesus. Because you, you can hear that church in Ephesus just kind of clap back to Paul. No, 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 but, but you don't remember who I once was. I was the one who would get drunk throughout the week and have three different hookups with multiple different people throughout the week. Paul says, I know. But God, being rich in mercy, made you alive even while you were dead in the passions of your bed. Someone in Ephesus might say, but I used to shame others. Because they weren't as good as me for their irreligion. And Paul says, I know. But God, being rich in mercy, even though you were dead in the passi- passions of your religious performists, he made you alive in Christ. There's many of you in this, here this morning want to say, but but you don't know me. You don't know what I did last night, last week, but I, I once was. I did this. I didn't do these things. And what Paul's begging you to do, and I'm begging you to do right now, is for every one look that you take at your shameful past, take ten looks At the present, right now presence of Jesus Christ in your life, you are hid in him. When God sees you, he sees Christ's performance and not your performance. Because it's by grace, not by your works. You might think that right now you are still dead in your sins, brother and sister, but that same Jesus who was nailed to, your cr- to the cross for your sin and your shame. When he's buried in that grave, he was buried with your sin and your shame. But when he walked out of that grave, you know what was left in the grave? Your sin and your shame, which means your sin and your shame is now dead. And now you, because you are alive in Christ Jesus, raised with Christ Jesus, seated with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places, your past no longer defines you. But Jesus' performance defines you. Oh, what glorious news. Paul is talking about a past tense reality. So, all my English nerds in here, you see this past tense? Have been saved, past tense. Made alive, past tense. Raised, past tense. Seated, past tense. You're made alive in a historical resurrection in the past. Why? So that you can receive heavenly blessings. Chapter 1, verse 3, right now. You have heavenly blessings right now because you are in Christ in a past historical resurrection. Jen Wilkin, one of my favorite authors, I I, I kind of paraphrased one of her quotes a couple weeks ago. But now i got it up on the screen for you so you can see it. She says, that because of Jesus' resurrection we have right now benefits right we have our justification she says that one day you were past tense freed fully from the penalty of sin you know what that means god's wrath no longer lays on you but it's love because of Jesus' resurrection your sanctification each day right now you're being freed increasingly from the power of sin in this Reality of our resurrection. Your glorification is to come. One day you'll be freed finally from the presence of sin, penalty of sin, power of sin, presence of sin, abolished because of the resurrection of Jesus. This happened in the past, so you can experience blessings today. Not by your works, but by grace. Why are you trying so hard? Why are you trying so hard to prove your worth to God? Sorry, I've been proven. (laughs) He loved you when you couldn't work. This is what God did. All by grace. Not by your white knuckling, not by your effort. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? Point two. This is what God did, but why? Paul gives us a so that. Point two, why God did it, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's like he knew we would forget about this, so he says it again. And this is not your own doing. Is that funny to anybody else but me, that he has to remind us twice? He he knows we love performance religion. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, in case he wasn't clear the first time, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Why did God save you? Why did God save me? It's for one overarching reason for two present realities. The one overarching reason that he saved you, it's because of his loving and lavish grace. And it's rooted for two realities. He saved us for the future. Do you see that? So that in the coming ages, and he saved us because we couldn't save ourselves from our past. On the one hand, he did save us so that in the new heavens and new earth, the coming ages, verse 7, we might be lavished with his riches of grace. We're saved by grace in the past so we can experience grace in the future. We are a people who weren't just saved, but will be saved. Past salvation, future salvation. And that future salvation, we're not merely longing or hoping for some consolation for the life that we've lost to our sin. But do you know in the resurrection, when Christ returns, you'll have the life you wanted but never had here. Let me put it in in very modern terms. Paul is saying for Christians there's no such thing as FOMO. You laugh. But there's no such for a Christian, there's no such thing as fear of missing out. Because our next life isn't just this consolation prize. It's but but it's a, it's a restoration of everything you've ever wanted and even more. You don't have to fear about missing out. It's the riches of his grace. And in fact, he says you can't even measure it. It's like trying to grab a drink of water from Niagara Falls. You can't do it. You can't measure God's grace. It's immeasurable. And now he says for a second time, to belabor my point here, that we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Verse 5 and verse 8. Why? Because he doesn't want you getting any prideful or arrogant idea that he saved you because of you. Grace, by definition, is God's favor upon us in spite of us. It's his acceptance of us. It's free to us, but costly to him. Cost him his life. You cannot work for a gift, for that's what grace is. You cannot earn a gift. It wouldn't be a gift if you can earn it. I mean, how many of you all have been a part of gift exchanges before? There's usually like a dollar amount. Or or maybe you're you're a part of a family that when you buy a gift for someone else during Christmas time, they have to get you a gift of equal or greater value. Or maybe that's you. Can I just be real with you all? That's not gift giving. You know what that is? That's an exchange program. You get me this, I'll give you this. Don't most of us treat God's grace that way? Most of us think that there's still work to be done in order for Him to love us? That we still have to give something back to Him to prove that we are worthy of this grace? See, when we accept by faith Christ's gift of grace, we're saying it's something that I can never earn and it's something that I'm not entitled to. That's a transaction, not a gift. See, when I give my kids gifts, I work for it, I put the hours in, I budget the money. I choose not to spend it on me, but spend it on them. Gifts are a great sacrifice. And what do I want for my kids to experience as a father? To enjoy the gift. To enjoy it. Paul is telling you to enjoy this gift of grace. Enjoy it. Why did God do what he did? It's so that you can enjoy it. But also because you cannot earn it. He's saying you cannot save yourself. You cannot save yourself from your past reality not a result of works, so that you can't boast. You can't convince God that you have two spiritual pennies to rub together, to convince him that you have enough spirituality to purchase his love for you. You can't muscle your way into this relationship. You cannot save you. You cannot add to God's saving act. Who is grace for? It's not for the religious who think that they can work for God's love. It's for those who humbly admit, I cannot change me. I cannot save me. James 4, 6, in quoting a proverb, he says this, but he, that is God, gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the who? Who? Proud, but he gives grace to who? The humble says, I can't save me. The humble says, like Paul, even faith is a gift. Did you see that in the text? That even faith, he says, it this is the gift of God. Not just grace, the gift of faith. Scotty Smith, I talked about him earlier, he says, faith isn't a muscle by which we merit God's favor. Faith is the empty hand which God fills with the riches of his grace. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. Foul unto the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Do you see the beauty and the riches of God's grace? Grace is the gift of faith in Christ. Grace humbles us, for it is the gift of the forgiveness of sins once and for all, not based on what you have done, but based on what Jesus has done. Grace humbles us, for it is the complete acceptance of, God's complete acceptance of us in Christ Jesus, which means God just doesn't tolerate you or put up with you. God delights in you and loves being around you. Grace humbles us because grace is a person, and His name is Jesus. He's the very presence and heavenly blessing, His spirit alive and well in you. Grace, like we said, is the freedom from past sin from past sin's penalty. Grace is the freedom to live more freely opposed to sin's power. Grace is God's complete work in you from start to finish, doing what I cannot do for myself. Paul reminds another church in Philippi about this. He says, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Grace starts the work, continues the work, finishes the work. Are you starting to see that in order to change, you must first admit, I can't change? That's time now to put down our works, put down our pride put down our boasting, put down our entitlement, and wake up to grace. Wake up. This is what God did. This is why He did it. We couldn't do it. But look who He declares us to be. Point three. I love this identity language. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you remember the ways Paul said we once walked? We used to walk according to the passions of our flesh. But now in Christ, we who once walked that way, now walk this way. You were once the walking dead. Now you are walking masterpieces. Masterpieces, that's that's, that's another translation for that term, workmanship. How how many of you all have seen in person the Sistine Chapel? Anybody? Now, now when you first saw that, or or think of the, the folks who first saw the Sistine Chapel. Do you think that they were asking the question, who are those characters up there? No, what were they asking? Who's the artist? Who painted this? History lesson, it was Michelangelo. What Paul's drawing us towards is that when people look at us, they're not asking about us. They're not seeing us. They're seeing The artist. They're wondering about who made you like that? Who recreated you like that? That we are the masterpiece. God is the master craftsman. Yes, that's annoying, but you guys can pay attention, right? We are the masterpiece. God is who? The master craftsman. We are the design. Help me out here so you can pay attention. If we're the design, that means God is who? The designer. We are the created. God is who? The creator. I just wonder, when others see you, do they wonder who the designer is? When others see you, will they boast in the artist, God himself? Or do they simply see you Because your life is one of posing and posting how you changed you, saved you, remade and redesigned you. Or did they see you walking in these good works that Paul tells us to humble ourselves and admit we didn't even plan for ourselves, that God planned for us to walk in? Like a good mother holding the hands of that 11-month-old baby. Doesn't have the muscles to hold himself up. But she's prepped those steps for him, walking with him every step of the way. Oh, children of the Heavenly Father, do you know God has not only caused you to walk in newness of life, he plans those steps of newness of life. And this runs contrary to the air we breathe. Through every area of our culture, they'll say, "I don't. I don't need to walk according to somebody else's standards. I don't need to walk according to how somebody else planned my life out for me." No true freedom, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, maybe even you here this morning. True freedom is when I don't have any boundaries, when there's no such things as trespasses, crossing a line outside of God's design. I walk according to my truth. I recreated me. I retooled, redesigned me for my desires and my design for true freedom is the absence of restrictions, the absence of boundaries. But isn't that type of thinking short-sighted? First, imagine giving a seven-year-old that type of freedom. Imagine giving your diet that type of freedom. Imagine giving power-hungry women and men in leadership that type of freedom. Everyone and those areas must live for something, and whatever it is will both enslave us when we think freedom is like that, and will also exploit those around us. Because we center our lives, that freedom that we want, the good we want is all centered on me. If you walk this way, you will only have a trail of death in your relationships around you, and death inside of you. It's the desires of the flesh. I mean, think for a moment if you were to apply this to your job or your career. You just did whatever you wanted, however you wanted, to whomever you wanted in your job. If you guys have been around Renaissance long enough, you've you've heard me tell this story, this illustration before. I mean, just think if you just decided to show up to that new startup that you got hired for. So decided to start showing up late and leaving early. He said no all to all the meetings that inconvenienced you and only said yes to meetings that were a convenience to you. And that startup, as you're coming in late, you're leaving early, there, there's actually some other employees in there who are actually doing a great job. And one of those employees is actually the owner's son. And he does show up early. He's not like a typical entitled owner son. Shows up early, leaves late, and he's been filling in the gaps where you've been missing. And so at your six-month performance review, you get called into the owner's office. And as you're walking in, the owner's son, Josh, he just comes out of the door, tears in his eyes, but a smile on his face. As you sit down for your performance review, his dad, your boss, says, man, you're such an asset to this company. You come in early, you leave late, you pull the weight for others when they're not pulling it on their own. I'm not only going to give you a a promotion, you you get buy-in to this company now. You're an heir of, of this company. And you're sitting there wondering, who is he talking about? This is not me. He's not describing me right now. And so without even asking, you just run out of there. You go find Josh in the parking deck. And you say, what what has happened? And Josh looks at you with a smile on his face and says, I've swapped out our performance reviews. I'm getting the credit you deserve and you are now getting the credit that i deserve you get the benefit of being a son a co-heir in this company and this is the reality that paul's trying to drive home to this church that i need driven home in my heart that we need driven home in our souls. It's not based on your performance that God has loved you. It's not based on your performance that he has showered his mercy upon you. It's not based on your performance that he has shown you grace. It is solely based on the performance of Jesus Christ in him alone that now make us his masterpiece, that now causes him to call us sons and daughters. We're now co-heirs with Christ. That we now get the inheritance that the son deserves. What do you think would happen to you as that employee when you found out that you got the credit that you did not deserve? Do you think you'll slack off anymore? No. You'll want to get to work out of joy. Your career has been saved. And how much more now do we want to be God's workmanship, now knowing that we have been saved, not by our work, by grace, through faith alone. You see, it's not our salvation that we work for. It's our salvation that we now work from. It's a brand new identity. At every turn, you are being sold the lie. You need to change you. And really, the true problem in you is not actually in you, it's actually outside of you. It's your relationships, it's politics, it's money, it's your career. But you know what happens to not just a culture, but a church who begins to believe that your acceptance before God is based on you? It becomes an arrogant and pride-filled community that just looks down on others until they work themselves out of their life that is heading to hell. Here's the thing, if the problem is inside of us, That means the solution cannot be inside of us. It has to be outside of us. It has to be in Christ. That we were created in God's image. We were his masterpiece. But we sold that design for the desires of following after the created rather than the creator. But the triune God does not look down on you and say, would you just change already? He's not sitting up there saying, I'm just waiting on this world to change. No, if he waited on us, he'd still be waiting. No, Christ Jesus, who sat enthroned, doesn't sit up on that throne with pride, telling us to shape up or ship out. He does not sit up on that throne with disdain and belittlement that he is better than us. No, in humility. What does Christ do? consider our interest more important than his own. In humility, he stepped down, put on human flesh, was made in our likeness. And in humility, he not only lived the life that we could not live, he went to die a humiliating death on a cross. He took the penalty that we deserve. When Jesus cries, it is finished. It wasn't hyperbole. He's saying it is finished and now you have no reason to boast and you have no reason to gloat in your woeful inadequacies. No, we get to hang up our works because our work has been completed in Jesus. Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Hear me this morning. There's nothing left to prove to the Father. Your faith doesn't even have to be strong enough because it's not the amount of faith you have. It's the object of your faith. Christ, who is strong enough on your behalf, You can put down your 10-step plan to better marriage, to a better career, to better parenting, to better adulting, and wake up to the riches of God's grace. You know what this will do for us as a community? It provides for you an identity, a masterpiece, like any other. We are his workmanship. One that provides unconditional love, and it's not based on the ups and downs of your performance or lack thereof. It teaches us to walk in his love, to work from his love, and not for his love. Amen? Gives us a new identity that's no longer controlled by the desires of our flesh. But it's controlled by his sold-out desire for us. Let's be a church who no longer works for this acceptance, but works from it no longer works for this identity, but works from it. Friends, he's made us alive. Let's now walk in those good works he's prepped for us. Amen?